Stephen Hawking, you've heard of the, the eminent British theoretical physicist. Stephen Hawking turned 70 two weeks ago. So to celebrate that milestone, the magazine New Scientist interviewed this brilliant author. He wrote the book, uh, A Brief History of Time. You've read that book. Brilliant scientist. They interviewed him. And as a result of that interview, we now know the mystery before which even the great Stephen Hawking bows. When the journalist asked him, what do you think about most during the day? Hawking replied, and I'll put his words on the screen for you, women, they are a complete mystery. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the pronouncement of one of the brightest minds on earth. We now know that mystery, women. But women were no mystery to Jesus. They were and remain one half of his strategic plan for the human race. Case in point, our story today, Jesus and one woman. Open your Bible with me, please, to the Gospel of John, our new semester series entitled The Last Days. Let's put the title slide up, please. The Last Days, not the last days of earth, the last seven days of Jesus' life. One-third of all four Gospels devoted to the last seven days. That's what counts, the last seven days. Title of today's teaching, Of Perfumed Tears and Grumpy Old Men. So grab your Bible. You, wanna, you didn't bring your Bible? Oh, this is a narrative. It's a short but punchy narrative. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Leave that, uh, leave that up on the screen, please, because I want to say to those of you who are joining us right now on television or live streaming, we're delighted to have you. Glad you're here. You can go to that website. You see that website there, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to the website. Click on to This is the second teaching in this new series. You just heard the title, and it'll say study guide. Get that study guide. Ushers, would you make sure that everybody here gets a study guide? Bless you. This is an unusual study guide. It's for, it's for taking notes. You'll see why in a moment. There are no fill-in-the-blanks, but you're going to need this. There's one quotation I want you to have for sure. So hold your hand up. I hope the choir has the study guide to do. Good. Let's go. All right, John chapter 12. So I'm in the New King James Version. Let's, let's, let, let's go to John chapter 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, at the end of this week, he's dead. This is Saturday night. Six days from now, he'll be dead, Calvary. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. That's where we were last week. This is the same Lazarus. This is last week's story now. Just, just providing the linkage here. There in that little village of Bethany, they made him a supper. Jesus is the, he is the guest of honor. But I need to tell you that the, every, all the uninvited are crowded around that banqueting hall that night because... For four days, his body was decomposing, and now he's alive, and everybody wants to see Lazarus. So Lazarus is also a guest of honor. So they made him a supper in, in verse 2, and Martha served, that would be Lazarus' sister, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Jesus. Then verse 3, Mary, that would be Lazarus' other sister, Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. 
Now, by the Greek language here in John and the other uh, three synaptics, this nard plant, here's what we know about it. This nard plant was a tiny but fragrant blossom that only grew on the hills at the feet of the mighty Himalayas in northern India. So you can understand it was a rare and exquisite perfume oil. Easily it could command an entire, an entire year of wages for a commoner. Scholars wonder, did Mary somehow liquidate her part of the family inheritance? We don't know. All we know is that at great, at great expense, she purchased a pound of this spike nard in a narrow alabaster flask and quietly, surreptitiously slipping into the banqueting room full of men, she broke open her precious alabaster flask. Read verse 3 again. Then Mary took a pound. Now, that's a Roman pound, about 12 ounces. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. You know, I can never fool Karen. When I come back shopping for a gift for her, I never fool her, whether it's for her birthday or Valentine's or, or Christmas or whatever, because I love to shop for perfume. And so I go to that department store counter. And I'm never content, I don't know how you are, guys, but I'm never content with just getting one little sample. You, look, I know they have these little white paper sticks that you're supposed to and then smell the stick. Forget it. For me, it has to be on flesh. I have to smell it. So I took that one finger out. Whew, that's good. And I take another one because I love to get a lot of them. Take the other one. And get a third one. I go through all the fingers, and I see Karen do this, so I do it on my wrist. Oh, that is good. <laughs> So I got to check it all out. Then I make the purchase. And every time when I come walking through the door, she always guesses what I bought her for a gift. What's up with that? Because a perfume worth its salt cannot be hidden. That's what's up. And that's what's happening here. Mary has desperately tried to be discreet and unnoticed as possible. She timidly slips into that room of men. She anoints the head and the feet of this man who forgave her, her past of utter lostness. He knew all about her past. She can hardly restrain her tears. Such deep gratitude for that forgiveness. By the way, she has heard this man seven times in tears himself, pleading with his father, deliver this woman from what is holding her in the clutches. Seven times he's begged for her deliverance. And I'm telling you, it's just a heart bursting with gratitude. And by the way, the rumor's out, he's going to become the anointed Messiah King, and she wants to have her anointing ahead of the public one. And so she comes and breaks that flask and the room becomes a lovely department store perfume counter. Verse 4. But, uh-oh, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why? Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This, verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Unlike the synoptics, 
John intentionally IDs two of the key players in Jesus' story. The protagonist, John reveals her name, perhaps because Mary is now dead, and any embarrassment about her checkered past is no longer relevant. So he IDs the protagonist, and he IDs the antagonist, because by identifying Judas as the instigator of this cruel and heartless public shaming, John deftly creates a powerful contrast between Judas's greed and avarice and Mary's utterly sacrificial devotion to the Savior. I mean, like an awful sore thumb beside her, Judas sticks out. But like a fragrant blossom beside rancid waters is Mary. Judas, by the way, was the chief instigator, but all the disciples, all the men piled on. Watch this. We'll go to the Gospel of Mark now and just get his reading. Mark 14, verse 3. While Jesus was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. It's made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? Can you believe it? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. All of them rebuked her harshly. So how does Jesus respond? Back to your own Bible, verse 7. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always. But me, you do not have always. Leave her alone. Don't you just love Jesus for that? When you think about it, come on. Nobody speaks up in her defense. Not her brother Lazarus, not her sister Martha, not one of the disciples that has tasted and, and enjoyed the warmth of that congenial hospitality in that little Bethany home. Nobody speaks up. But one man, leave her alone. Ah, uh, how can we not help but love Jesus for this? I tell you what, it takes chutzpah. To speak in defense of the defenseless, doesn't it? I mean, come on, you think about it. It takes moral backbone to, to speak up in defense of the minority, the marginalized, when no one else dares say a word. It does take courage, doesn't it? How can you not help but love Jesus at a moment like this? I mean, look, he not only converses with a Samaritan woman, he makes a Samaritan the hero of one of his greatest parables so that we end up calling that hero the good Samaritan, and the Jews hated Samaritans. Jesus not only forgives prostitutes and tax collectors and other sinners, he dines with them. That's social hotspot in spades. And when nobody else has time for the children... Who is this who gathers the little ones in his arms and he hugs them and he blesses them? Pagan Gentiles? Now, Jesus, Syrophoenician mother, pagan Roman centurion. He's going to die for them all. And women? When the strictest rabbis and the most orthodox 
Pharisees would never be caught talking in public to another woman other than their own wife. Jesus gratefully, publicly received the ministry of many women. Many. Look at this. This is Calvary. This is Mark chapter 15. At the cross, there were also there at the cross women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene. And by the way, you just met Mary Magdalene in John 12. Mary, the mother of James the Less, and of Hosis, and Salome who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with Jesus to Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Many other women followed him and ministered to him. Which means this leave her alone is not some isolated little moment in defense of a woman. Obviously, Jesus gladly publicly receive the ministry of all these women. Leave her alone. I mean, you think what's just happened. Come on, think. What has just happened when he, he in stern voice, commands? I mean, here's this woman. She's just quietly entered into a man's world has humbly brought to Christ her own expression of love and devotion when suddenly noticed for her out-of-bounds expression, a certain man leaps upon that act and loudly declares, this is a, a misguided waste of effort and a misappropriation of devotion. And all, have you noticed, all it takes is for one man to protest and soon other men to prove their male credentials, jump on the bandwagon until all of them would drive this woman from their circle until another man interrupts. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Now remember, this is the same Jesus. This is the same Mary. And from the same little village of Bethany. Some months earlier, you remember the story when Martha comes into the living room, just all huffing and buffing. Hey, come on, Jesus. What is up with this? You just let my sister sitting here with all of you men. When I got work to do in the kitchen, would you command her to come back to the kitchen with me? Remember that story? How did Jesus respond? Mary, Martha's right. You need to remember your place in this world. It's not here with all the men and me. It's in the kitchen where you belong. Now go, 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 girl. How did he respond? Look at this, Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. And Jesus answered and said to her, when he repeats your name, it's because he, he really he loves you. Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, girl. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, it's okay for Mary to be here because she's chosen the better part. She's doing it out of love for me. The very same observance as that Saturday night banquet. She's doing it out of love for me. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder, where would Jesus stand today? In a church that has opened its doors of ministry to all except women. Oh, it's true, there are designated ministries in the church that women are applauded for doing. 
But no pastoral ministry is she allowed to perform with the same recognition of spiritual authority as her male counterparts enjoy. Namely, the sacred and ecclesiastical recognition that God has already called and gifted the individual. A calling with spiritual authority and leadership recognized universally in the church by something called ordination. Ordination does not confer giftedness. Ordination recognizes it's already there and we see the fruit. No, Mary, (laughs) no, no. For that, you need to leave this circle. For God's Word declares that this responsibility of spiritual authority belongs only to men. I'm sorry. It does. I just read an article in defense of that men-only position about ordination. Bless the writer's art. I, I had to wonder why what is so clear to me in Scripture is not clear to the writer. For example, the writer, listen, the writer suggested that when the Bible declares that the elder, or that would be the pastor, is to be the husband of one wife, that clearly means that only men can hold that position of ordained spiritual leadership. But that's not how I read the text. Let's look at the text. Let's put it on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul writing, A bishop, and that can be an elder, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. But listen, I no more require that text to be read as meaning exclusively male then I require Jesus' instructions to his disciple ministers to be read as meaning exclusively the way he phrases it. Here's what he says to a group of men who have just been ordained to the gospel ministry. I want you to see this. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, we'll pick it up in verse 9. He's getting ready to send them out on their first pastorate. Provide, he says, hey, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Now, I'm not thinking, man, I've got to get that wallet gone and got to find a money belt. I'm not thinking that. Verse 10, nor don't, don't, don't get a bag, don't get a suitcase for your journey. You don't need two tunics, nor sandals, just the ones you have on are all you need, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, ladies and gentlemen, surely Jesus' detailed instructions to his disciples do not mean that today we're not allowed to take suitcases when we pastors travel. And we're not allowed to take an extra change of clothes or an extra pair of sandals. We should only wear sandals. He's not saying you've got to have a staff or no staff. Is he? Ah, oh, come on, Dwight, please. Jesus is speaking to specific men in a specific country and culture at a specific time. You're stretching the scripture to make him require sandals and staffs and no suitcases of his ministers 2,000 years later which, my friend, is precisely the point. We listen to ancient Scripture, even the red-letter words of Jesus, and we interpret the principles behind those words for our living and ministering today. We make the application. You know what Jesus is saying? I believe he's saying we ought to travel. We ought to travel light. We ought to travel simply. Which being interpreted simply and clearly means that the church is to... How did Paul put it? He gave his counsel about ordaining those who are the husband of one wife. But what is he saying? If he's not 
admonishing the church to ordain those who are maritally faithful to their spouses. Hey, look, oh, no, no, you say, no, 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 you can't do that. That has to stay literal. Jesus, he's figurative. This is literal. Okay, let's say it stays literal. Think about the implications if it remains literal. If these words are to be a literal command for all time, the husband of one wife, then there can be no single ministers. No single ministers. Well, how can you be single? You have to have a wife. There can be no remarried ministers, no divorced ministers, because now you have two wives. And number three, there can be no childless ministers because the very next line says he, he must be very good at raising his children. So you can't, you can't be a childless pastor. No, oh, come on, Dwight. Nobody wishes to push that single phrase that literally. Everybody reinterprets it to fit our society today as we do with Jesus' command to his disciples. But for some reason, and I'm trying to figure this out, for some reason, those who do not believe that women should be granted the same spiritual authority for their calling to gospel ministry, they allow a free interpretation of the phrase for singles. Oh, yeah, you can have singles. Remarried. Oh, yeah. Childless. No problem. But inexplicably, they suddenly demand a strict, literal interpretation for gender. Oh, no, you have to be a man. Three times you said we could, we could interpret it away. But this one you can't. Ah, I must humbly, personally, disagree with them. For I believe... I believe that they are inconsistently interpreting Scripture to fit their beliefs and not allowing Holy Scripture to dictate their beliefs. Yeah, but come on, Dwight, please. Doesn't the Bible command women to keep silent in church and to not exercise spiritual authority over men because Eve was created second and sin first? Well, that's a good question. Let's reread what God very plainly declared to, the, to our first parents, Adam and Eve, after their moral meltdown in the Garden of Eden. Let's put the Genesis 3 on the screen here. To the woman, this is the Creator. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, by the way, the same one that uh, was there with Mary. To the woman, He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, sadly, many have read God's words to mean that all women are to be subordinated to all men. But that is simply not what God is saying. In fact, the Creator, very, very clearly the Creator, literally in the Hebrew, here's what He's saying, and your desire shall be for your man. There's no word for husband there. It's ish. Your desire is for your man. Which means this was never a carte blanche declaration that all women would be subordinated to all men in or out of the church. It's not there. You know what this is? This is a post-fall Chain of command, divine spiritual leadership prescription dealing with husbands and wives. That's what it is. Which, by the way, hardly diminishes the wife's role in marriage. I mean, let me, let me give you two reasons why. If you've ever read Proverbs 31, the ideal wife, oh, mercy. Look at her financial leadership. Look at her familial leadership. Look at her managerial skills. She buys and sells property without consultation with anybody. You can't read Proverbs 31 and say, well, there's subjugation. It's not about subjugation at all. 
In fact, with Proverbs 31, go ahead and add Ephesians 6, where Paul takes that Genesis 3 principle and it applies, and he says, listen, this is really how it works, guys. Both, both husband and wife are to submit to each other. He describes mutual submission. But the husband is to, somebody's got to take the first step. So it is the husband's responsibility in the example of Christ's self-sacrificing love at Calvary. It's the husband's example to initiate repentance. I was wrong. To, to offer forgiveness. To break the logjam. Paul is carefully, carefully protecting this wall that God has placed around husband and wife in the human home. But he's not making a statement, just as God was not, about women and men on this planet. Now, here's that line. You need to see the line that's in question. Some people read this line for the first time and say, whoa, what is that? Here's Paul writing, St. Paul, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. 1 Timothy 2.11, here comes verse 12. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Does that mean all women are to be subjugated to all men for all time? Hardly. In the church, not at all. Let me show you something. That word for man, aner, that word for woman, gune. Those words can be translated either man husband or woman wife, which means Paul's admonition can accurately read, let a wife in church learn in silence, for I do not permit a wife to teach her to have authority over her husband, which being interpreted means Paul is carefully protecting God's protective wall around marriage and home. He's no way declaring all women are subordinated to all men in the church and only men are allowed spiritual authority. He's not saying that at all. He's talking what the Creator was talking about. Husband and wife relationship. Post-fall, somebody has to take the initiative. Moreover, moreover, the position that men, only men, are to be ordained to the gospel ministry and thus be granted spiritual authority in the church, which I believe the Bible does not support. That position is not supported biblically. But isn't that position particularly incongruous in a denomination that was founded by a woman? And some male colleagues... What's up with that? The most prolific American author of either gender? The third most translated human being in the history of the earth? A wife, a mother, a visionary, a leader, raised up the most expansive Protestant educational system on earth? She raised up the most expansive Protestant health system on earth. She raised up the most expansive Christian missionary movement on earth. Isn't it a bit incongruous that some within this community of faith, which recognizes the spiritual authority of that little five-foot-two-inch woman named Ellen White, isn't it incongruous that some who revere her authority would continue to insist that women should not exercise spiritual authority over men. To me, that is just one astounding anomaly. How do you explain it? 
And by the way, any little comment about, well, women prophets, women who exercise the prophetic gift have spiritual authority, the rest of the women don't, that's just playing word games. Isn't it something? Especially when, listen to this, especially when not a single word from her ever prohibiting the church from coming to a prayerful, careful, biblical understanding that is utterly consistent with the Bible witness to conclude that women who are called by God today share with men the same spiritual authority and accountability of gospel ministry as recognized by ordination. Not a single word saying, oh, no, 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 no. You can't go down that path. Not a word. There is not a single word. And I read widely, trust me. There is not a single word ever suggesting that such a prayerful, careful, biblical decision would be out of harmony with God's will for His people at this time in history. In fact, to the contrary, I've got to share this with you. I came across these words in Acts of the Apostles while preparing my GYC sermon on uh, Acts 10 and 11. You remember, Acts, you remember the story behind Acts 10 and 11? You remember uh, Cornelius, the Roman centurion? And you remember Peter, who's never, he's never put a sandal in a Gentile's home. He would never, on the pain of death, he would never do it. And you remember an angel shows up to Cornelius and says, hey, go get a guy named Peter. He's over in Joppa. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit shows up to Peter and says, by the way, go with these people who have come. You remember that story? So Peter finds himself doing what he's never done in all his life. He's, he's put his sandals in a Gentile's, a pagan home. And then he begins to preach Jesus, and God doesn't even wait for Peter to finish his sermon. Suddenly, in the middle of a sermon, boom, the Holy Spirit is poured out on these Gentile pagan seekers. Wow. So Peter says, baptize them all. But oh boy, when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's in hot water, and they call him in on the red carpet, and they said, what were you thinking to eat in a Gentile's home? And so in chapter 11, Peter is disgraced. He says, listen, let me tell you something, guys. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Here's what happened. And he goes through the whole story. He gets down near the end of the story. And I want you to listen very carefully now to what he says to the, to the hierarchy in Jerusalem. And as he says, and I'm, I'm there preaching away. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as upon us at the beginning. First, if therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? I mean, they have the same gift. I didn't realize that, but they have the same gift. How can I say, no, only me with that gift counts, not you? I couldn't do it, brethren. I could not do it. The wall separating Jews and Gentiles began its last crumble in that incident. Amazing. I mean, that's what, what Peter's just said. That's the question for the church today. If God has poured out His Spirit on young women and not-so-young women who are ministering just as Mary did to the Lord Jesus, and the fruits of their ministry are dramatically clear to all who observe their ministry, if therefore God gave them the same gift He gave us, then who are we as men to stand in the way? How in the name of Christ 
Can we defend this wall when our leaders are circumnavigating this this planet these days, begging the church of God to plead for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And I join them, and I believe we need that outpouring. But how can we stand before God and beg for that infilling when there's a wall that's separating us? The wall will have to come down before the Spirit can come down. You can't come down with a wall blocking your way. It's not my fault, God says. You have to help me. Get this wall down. Then I'll come. So we'll keep praying. We'll keep praying. But we have the answer to our prayers in our own hands. Now, here's that line from Ellen White. I want you to catch this. This is her inspired commentary. At the moment, chapter 11 comes to an end. Put it on the screen for you. Acts of the Apostles. Thus, without controversy, prejudice was broken down. The exclusiveness established by the custom of ages was abandoned. By the way, those italics are mine. The exclusiveness established by the custom of ages was abandoned. We've always done it this way. We've always through the ages done it this way. But when the Holy Spirit came down, the exclusiveness established by the custom of ages was abandoned and the way was open for the gospel to be proclaimed to the Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? It took that wall to come down to open up the gospel to be proclaimed more widely, more effectively, more powerfully than ever before. But did you catch that line? The exclusiveness established by the custom of ages was abandoned. And ladies and gentlemen, isn't it time for the wall to come down in the gospel ministry? For how can God possibly bless the exclusiveness established by the custom of ages? Look, women might be a mystery to Stephen Hawking, but they are no mystery to God. For women are one half of his strategic plan for the human race, and women are one half of his will for the gospel ministry. Amen. Let's pray. O Jesus, defender of the defenseless, remover of the wall, isn't it time for the church to become just like you? And while your head is still bowed in prayer, I need to make an appeal here. And this appeal is only for the women who are here, who are watching, who are listening. Three appeals. Number one, ladies, would you be willing to offer your life to Jesus like Mary in gratitude for his his loving sacrifice on your behalf? Would you? I already know the answer to that question. Of course you do. Here's appeal number two. Would you be willing to offer your career 
as a ministry for him. A young woman come in to my office after First Church. She said, I'm taking science here. We talked. It doesn't matter your career. It doesn't matter your major here. God has led you to choose that, I believe. But would you be willing to offer that major, that career to come, or the career you're already in as a lawyer, physician, a, a, a homemaker, a wife? Would you be willing to offer your career to Jesus so that it might be a daily ministry for Him? And then appeal number three. I hesitate with this one. I hesitate to ask you to offer your life for gospel ministry because the truth is not many young women are being placed. And in some places the door is not open at all. But I cannot not invite you to respond to Christ's call, whatever the Spirit means for you. And so with these three appeals in your heart, I'd like to ask the women who are here, if you're willing to respond to one of those three appeals, to stand to your feet, just as Mary stepped into that room in front of all those men, to demonstrate her devotion to Jesus, I'd like to invite you to stand to your feet. And by standing, you say to Jesus, I am available to you. I am available to you. God bless you. Oh, Jesus, they stand before you. You who stood up for them long ago, they stand up for you now. Jesus, seal her devotion. Seal her passion. Seal her calling. Seal her commitment. And take her. As you did with Mary, turn the world upside down for her ministry. Oh, Jesus, we all would stand before you. We all would offer our lives to you. And so I wish to stand with these women, and I invite my, my brothers here, if they wish to stand with them, to stand with me now. So that we're all standing. The whole family of God is standing. We're saying, whatever you want, Jesus, Use us any way you wish. The hour has come for the Spirit to be outpoured and we wish to be a part of that mighty, final gift. Seal all of us, Jesus. Seal us for the journey ahead. And may you be glorified, please. May you be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.
I want to sing one stanza. Pull the hymnal out in front of you. Just one stanza of this beautiful, I will follow thee, my Savior, wheresoe'er thy cross shall lead. It's 623. Take the hymnal out. 623, just one stanza. And then we leave worship to the world that awaits us. Stay standing. Sing that, I want to sing that chorus one more time. It's such a beautiful confession. And it says, although all men will forsake you, although all people forsake you, Lord Jesus, I'll follow you. Let's sing it. We're singing quieter now as our, as our prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. We pray, the, we pray this in commitment. I will follow Now may the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide with us all. Amen.